Tonight, we get to talk about uh, prayer and silence. And uh, and silence is one of those things that I always kind of find a little bit, you know, welcoming. I love silence, but it can also be somewhat troubling, even maybe intimidating. Uh, For instance, I love outside on a cool night. I love being outside in the silence. It's just the stars and the occasional traffic. Uh, what I don't like is when my neighbors two houses down are having a swim party and with the speakers and the music and everything and it's uh, approaching 12 o'clock and I'm building up a healthy rage and stuff because this isn't right. This is not supposed to be happening uh, because don't they know they're interrupting my solitude? And that kind of, it kind of bothers me. But I, I love times like that when, you know, natures you're kind of out there in it and you're able to enjoy it and maybe even find god in that uh, i love when i take a nap sunday afternoon if you want if any of you are wondering hey i wonder what gary does on sunday afternoon that's a nap it's a nap every sunday and so i will my wife she don't even bother to ask what i'm doing anymore on sundays and so when i'm taking a nap i don't want to hear my neighbor's chainsaw all right i absolutely don't now the aftermath of that's usually fun because that usually involves fire and stuff. And I like participating in that. Um, but no, I actually kind of like, you know, the, the silence that comes from taking a nap. Um, I don't like complete quiet. Does anybody ever get bothered just by complete silence? I do. I can't go to a hotel room uh, and there just be no noise. I'm not talking about the screaming people going up and down the halls and stuff like that. I'm just talking about it's a quiet room and there's no sound at all. I have to sleep with a fan on or something. I need some kind of background noise uh, to kind of to help me through that. So I don't want absolute quiet, but sometimes when I'm in it, I find myself really enjoying it. Uh, I do know this, though. Silence can also be troubling. Have you ever, I'm wondering if you've ever experienced a time where it's just like silence was kind of like awkward. For instance, I bet we could create it right now if we wanted to. We're not. But if I just stop talking. Oh, yeah. See, because there's, it's like there's a vacuum there and something has to fill. And so a lot of times there might be this silence and there's always going to be somebody It's like, hmm. All right, maybe this isn't right. Somebody needs to say something. And, you know, silence can become awkward, like one-on-one. I don't know. I don't want to get into everybody's first date experiences. But, I mean, have you ever had that kind of thing where you're trying to meet someone for the first time? And it's like, I don't know what to say. I'm going to say something. I'm going to look stupid. I don't want to look stupid, so I'm not going to say anything at all. And so, so how you doing? I'm good, good. And that kind of conversation right there, that, that can be kind of awkward. I mean, I see it, uh, especially with students. I, I used to love watching students when I was in youth ministry go out on like their first dates and their first foray into young love and stuff. And it's just like they didn't know what to do. They, they didn't even know how to talk to each other. Uh, it was always fun. But what about silence and tragedy? I mean, we just heard of three funerals that were uh, we know of two that's coming up and pro- a third one that's probably coming up as well. Um Silence and tragedy is kind of a tough thing to do also. Have you ever been with someone and you just like wanted to say something, but you, and you felt like you had to say something, but maybe you just didn't know what to say? That can be tough. That can be tough because you also run the risk of saying, if you do say something, saying the wrong thing. 
One of the worst things that I, I've come to understand is you could say to someone grieving, it's like, oh, I understand what you're going through. Uh, because there's not much comfort that comes from those words. Uh, it, it's not. I know how you feel. That can be tough. I know when we pray, silence can be tough. Silence can be awkward as well because it's, it's sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I feel like I'm burdened with carrying the load. Uh, it's almost like I feel like the, the whole thing about praying, it, it's up to me to make sure it works. And that is a wrong way to think about praying because it's God who enables us to pray. It's God who hears the groanings of our hearts. And we're going to talk about that in just a, a minute. But sometimes we're praying, and we just, especially if we're in public, don't you sometimes feel like you got to talk and you just got to keep on talking? Sometimes we got to feel like maybe we, well, well I mean, this, I'm the guy who's been asked to pray, so I got to be spiritual, right? And you throw out one of those like King James prayers, you know, it's like, oh, Lord, we thanketh thee for thou thine's doubtfulness. And you just kind of keep throwing that out there just because you feel like I've been asked to pray. This is what I need to do. I need to represent. And it, it can be, it can be tough. One of the things I used to do with my youth group that it, it was unnerving to them for a while uh, until they got used to it. When we would pray as a group, I would say, let's pray. And then I wouldn't say anything at all for about 20, maybe 30 seconds. Uh, and the idea behind that was to prepare the, the atmosphere for what God was about to do, to prepare our hearts, prepare our minds and our spirits. And a lot of times the kids were like looking at each other and stuff like what's going on. And then I'd explain to them and they finally started buying into it. Uh, but that's a tough thing to uh, to kind of sit in if you're not used to doing that. Just being quiet while praying. Um, Psalm 4610 is a verse that keeps coming back up over and over again. Be still and know that he is God. And that is so, so important. It, it is because that, I think that one phrase right there really drives what it means to pray, to be still and know that he is God. And we're going to look at that a little bit closer as we progress. Uh, and the message on Sunday, Alan is going to illuminate times in the Bible when silence was key. Uh, he's going to offer practical advice for praying in silence. Uh, and I want to speak to some of those and offer my own perspective as we go along. Uh, one of the things he's going to talk about when you pray, listen. Oftentimes, one of the things that comes to mind is the story of Elijah. Now, if I ask you to tell me something about Elijah, uh, there's probably one story that comes to mind above all of the other stories. And I'm just I'm going to throw it out there. Tell me, what, what do you know about Elijah? Any big deal that he had going on, you nailed it. The uh, idea was that the one story that we probably all know most about Elijah is the time where he challenged the false prophets at Mount Carmel, and he wanted to prove once and for all or assert, if your God is God, fine. If our God is God, fine. Let's find out which one of us is right. 
And he went up against, I want to say it was close to 900 uh, false prophets. You had the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah or Ashtoreth. I mean, there's different names for this particular person uh, or this particular, quote, God. And so in this, and, and you know the story, you know the story where basically they said the challenge was whichever God causes fire to come down from heaven uh, and consume this sacrifice, this offering, then that God is God. And the false prophets were like, we got this. And I don't want to belabor this point too much. So I'll just skip to the end of the story. God won. God won this story. He, Elijah called on God to bring down fire, and God did exactly that. And to me, that has always been one of the most amazing stories in the whole Bible uh, until I read the story that came right after that. And then all of a sudden, that became, to me, one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. Because what you may or may not know is after that, Elijah ran for his life. And it blows my mind because here we have Elijah, this this mighty prophet of God, who was able, I'm not, when I say he called down fire from God, I'm not saying that he did that. I'm saying God honored Elijah's request, but God honored Elijah's request. He was able to ask God to do something and God did it. This is that guy. And he got to the point where one simple sentence that had gotten his attention caused him to run away scared. And uh, and I want to look at that. And we're in right now, First Kings chapter 19. Wicked King Ahab, that's not what your Bible probably says. It probably starts with Ahab. But, I mean, if you know anything at all about Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel, we know that they were evil. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. What did Elijah do? He had their prophets killed. He had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Basically what she's saying is if you're not dead tomorrow, may the gods make me dead. Elijah found out about this and we come to find out that he took off running. Verse three says he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servants there. And then he just kept on going and kept on going until he found himself in a cave. Uh, well, in this case, it says under a broom tree. And he asked God this. How's this for a prayer, by the way? It's enough now, God. I'm done. Go ahead and take my life. I don't know probably of a more brutally honest prayer in the Bible. I'm done. Everything that he just went through, this whole thing, that this great victory that he got to, to spearhead on top of this mountain. And all of a sudden, one message gets to him, and it just sends him running for his life, scared enough that he just like, God, I don't want to face that. Take my life now. And there's a very moving story from this point on where you get the impression that Elijah is just sitting there in, in, in misery and, and something that we've already talked about in one of these sessions in the sermon in, in, in his crisis. 
all of this stuff is going on. And you can imagine, it, actually, it's kind of hard to imagine what he was praying if he had words to pray at all. We don't have much to know about what he prayed other than God take my life now, because that's, I can't imagine a prayer that blunt and that honest. And uh, God ministered through that experience. God met him where he was. How did God meet him where he was? That's an interesting part of the story. He ends up in this cave and there's this angel that keeps popping up in this story. He says, Elijah, what are you doing? And Elijah, he's like, I've been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they killed your prophets and the sword. And I'm the only one left. And they seek my life. They're wanting to kill me now. And so we see where God keeps revealing himself to Elijah in different forms. And we're, we see in verse uh, 11 here. There was a strong wind that tore the mountains and broke in pieces and broke the pieces and rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, it was a sound of a low whisper. Seems interesting to me how that one concept keeps coming up in Scripture how we hear God in the silence, how God's voice in the silence is, it's like silence is where God needs us to be. So we are best positioned to hear what he has to say to us. And after that, we see God ministering to Elijah and setting him up for the next task that he has for him. See, God's desire is to communicate with his people. Even more than we desire to communicate with him, he's still the same God he has always been, and he continues to speak to us. The question is, are we listening? I will, I'll never forget, it was probably about 10 years ago, I was out working in the yard. Usually when I'm working in the yard, I'm like cutting the grass and stuff. Got the lawnmower going, leaf blower, whatever. Uh, this one night, I was out there doing something, none of that. And I heard something that I hadn't heard in probably three or four years, something I used to hear all the time. And it was the, the drum line for the Pope High School marching band a mile down the street from my house. I love marching bands. The pastor makes fun of me for it, but I'm OK because I'm secure in that. And so in this case, so I, I, I hit it and I, I literally dropped what I was doing because it one first it puzzled me. What is that? Then I realized, oh, wait, the drums are back. Well, that's kind of neat. Until I realized something, the drums were never gone. It's only that the only times I'd ever been out there uh, was when I had a lawnmower or a leaf blower or something. And I was creating all of this noise that prevented me from hearing what was always there to begin with. And once I realized that, it was like, wow, I wonder if maybe the reason I don't hear from God all the time is because all the noise I put in my life has blocked him out. I wonder if, and I, and I say I wonder if, because I already knew the answer to this. This was just things I just started thinking about. All this noise that I put between me and God 
maybe that's what's keeping me from hearing what God has to say. Um, and that was actually kind of a life-changing event. So when we pray, we listen. One of the other points a pastor wants to make on Sunday is when we pray, meditate. Sometimes we want to pray, but we can't. Maybe it's hard for whatever reason. Maybe we just don't have the words. A few years back, uh, I've, I've had an interesting career where I've been, I don't, for those of y'all who don't know me right now, I'm the IT director here. Yep, leading the Bible study. That's what I, IT directors do. And so uh, <laughs> at least at least one of us. And so, uh, uh, but there was a period where I'd given up an IT career and I was working in full-time student ministry for about 10 years. I've been in student ministry for about 30 years, uh, but only about 10 of those was full-time. And when all that came to an end, I'm sitting there like, now what? And this was even right before COVID started to do its COVIDy thing and uh, shut everything down. Uh, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I remember a lot of nights I'd be sitting outside in the quiet when my neighbors weren't having parties, looking up at the stars and just trying to pray, not really knowing what to say. Because I had these, these this vision for my life that I'm like I'm I'm, I'm I'm again I'm having trouble talking about it right now because even right now I'm not even sure what to say. What I do know is this: I, I was confident that through the fog that was out there, this fog that was kind of making up my life, that God was leading me to strategic points, to certain points. He wasn't all He wasn't showing me the end of the trail, but He was showing me what the next step was, uh, and that next step. I mean, and that that progression of steps led me here, but that was a journey. And it was like a, a lot of quiet meditations going, God, I just don't know. There wasn't a moment of grieving. There really wasn't even a moment of uncertainty. It was just like, matter of fact, my wife was probably had all of those things more than I did. Um, Cause I trusted that God had something planned. I just didn't know what that was. But even in those moments where we don't know what to pray, we, we, we look at Romans 8, 26 through 28, and we see that Paul speaks to that. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts know what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the, the saints according to the will of God. And, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so it gets back to this, this reminds me of those nights, all those nights where I'd be sitting outside and just like, I'd start a prayer. Hey, God, and there were some nights that's as far as I got. Because I was just like, and I realized it was, not, again, not so much groaning, but it was just like, I didn't have the words, but I had the confidence to know that God knew what I was, what I was trying to say. I don't think I've ever seen a better picture of this than a, a, recent, than a, a TV series that I recently started watching. Uh, and I'm curious if any of you have seen this new show called 1883. 
or do you even know what I'm talking about? It's a Western kind of thing. It's all on, I think, the Paramount Network. And it, uh, well, the, the second one is the one you want to watch because that's the one I'm going to talk about right now. It's at the very beginning. Uh, Tim McGraw, he's in it. Uh, he's, he's quite an actor. Uh, but this one had a, a guest star. The setup for this particular uh, story was he was a Civil War captain. Apparently, he was, you see this battlefield, and it's just bodies all over the place. It's the aftermath, and it's decimation everywhere. And you have one soldier. This is Tim McGraw. And he's just kind of wandering around, stumbling around, because he just realized that he's just lost everything. And in the background, you see these Union troops coming around and starting to circle him on horses and stuff. And he's still, he's in a daze. He's in shock. And at some point, he just sits down, and he's lost. Lost as lost could be. And then one of the generals of the Union Army comes and sits down next to him. Come to find out, this is Tom Hanks. It was a guest appearance. It was really cool. And uh, Tom Hanks, in this case, General Meade, he just sits down next to him. He says, Captain. That's one of three words that he said in the whole show. The next words he said, Tim McGraw character, he's just sitting there. He's just looking around. He, he doesn't know what to say. He's trying. He's trying to say something, but he can't. And he just gets choked up. Tom Hanks, he just says, I know. I know. And then uh, the captain, he just starts crying. He starts crying his eyes out. And the general just puts his hand on his shoulder. And that's where the scene cuts away. And I'm like, that might be the most beautiful picture of what Romans 8 is saying that I've ever seen. God knows. He knows the groanings of our hearts. And when we try to sit there and we try to say something, and we try to formulate those words and they just don't come out. God's like, I know. And we can take comfort in that. We see something of a similar story uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's the birth of Samuel. You might know a little bit uh, uh, about uh, the, this, this story here. It was this man... Elkanah, I might be pronouncing it right. He had two wives, so we already see the beginning of the trouble. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm almost convinced that anytime you see where the Bible points out that there was two wives or more, you know that something is about to happen, uh, and God's going to have to step into the picture here. Well, in this case, we had another one of those Bible stories where someone could have kids and someone couldn't. Uh, we see another one of these stories in the Old Testament where the husband loved one wife over the other, even though it was the wife that couldn't have kids. And so apparently this was becoming an abusive thing. One wife mistreating the other uh, to the point where every time they traveled, every time they went to go see the priest or something, uh, this one wife, in this case, her name was Hannah, she, she would cry. And the husband, he doesn't even know what to say. He's sitting here trying to comfort her. And I'm in verse eight now. 
she says, why is, he says, why is your heart sad? And, and true to form, you know, right there, probably saying the wrong thing, like most husbands do. He said, am I not more to you than 10 sons? And I'm like, even I've been married like almost 30 something years now. And even I know that's probably not a good question to ask because my wife would actually tell me exactly what I was worth. Uh, I, am I not more to you than 10 sons? And so she finally breaks away and she's just crying and weeping and praying and stuff to the point where it's just her mouth is kind of moving. And the priest there, uh, a man named Eli, sees what's going on. And he, he doesn't even, you know, show any kind of compassion. He comes down on her hard, uh, accusing her of like being drunk and stuff. And, and she's like, she was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord and she, she tells the priest, it says, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman for all along. I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and, and vexation. And then Eli, I give him credit. Uh, and there's not many places in the Bible where we can give Eli credit. Um, but this is one of them. It says, go in peace. The God of Israel Grant your petition that you've made to him. Now, I imagine that if I were to open the floor to a conversation on this topic, uh, there would be at least as many stories as there are people in the room and online. We all have some kind of story where we just we tried to talk and we tried to pray and we had this this sense of desperation going on that we're trying to transform into words that just won't won't happen. Um, and we're trying to draw some kind of comfort for God. And I think a common testimony for those who've learned how to sit in silence and listen to God, they will be able to talk about how they heard God through those, those trials and through those, those moments of crisis. Um, Pastor makes this point in his notes. He says, maybe one of the reasons we can't pray is because we know our hearts and the guilt of our hypocrisy, it makes us want to not even try to pray. But God gives hope to even the hypocrite when he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And the nature of his call was rest. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest in your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's from Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and uh, through 30, if that's something that you're writing down. Alan, in this study, offers a lot of practical advice on how to pray through these times. And on Sunday, he's going to suggest that if you want to pray and you don't know how, pray the Bible. He jumps immediately to the Psalms. He recommends finding one verse, maybe maybe one word, and fixate on that one word. I was talking earlier about my that that span of unemployment that I had. Um, Psalm forty six ten. I can't tell you how many times that came to mind. I did. I didn't even know where it was in the Bible. I just knew the verse. Be still and know that I am God. And this is the part that I keep coming back to, the part after that. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
those things when combined lets me know no matter what I have going on, God's got this. There's not a single problem I have that God's sitting there scratching his head going like, I don't know, Gary. I don't know what to do about this one. Good job on that. Um, that's not a problem. That's not a problem for God. Why? Because he is the one that will be exalted among the nations. And I get to talk with him. I get to listen to him. He will be exalted in the earth and I get to talk to him and I get to bring my burdens to him and my concerns uh, in the midst of my, my, my groanings, in the midst of my, my guilt, in the midst of my hypocrisy, all of that stuff that might be going on. Um, I know that this is the God that I get to talk to and there's not a problem that I have that he can't handle. One of the other things that uh, Alan wants to talk about or will talk about is this. When you pray, confess. Most of you are probably familiar with 1 John chapter 9, or not chapter 9. There is no such thing. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a lot of advice to be taken out of that. There's a lot of... Uh, context though that we kind of need to know so i want to look at that verse in its context i want to look at verse six and go through ten it says this if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we lie and we do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Here it is. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned and we make him, we make him a liar, his word is not in us. So in that, you have these words of hope and promise if we confess our sins. And it's bookended by, but if you don't, if you say you are righteous, but you do not confess your sins and seek the face of the one who can take those sins away, you're a liar. His word is not in us. When we confess both individually and as a community, the pastor says we clear the air and we facilitate listening to God. Confession is cleansing. It, it, it's amazing to me how there'll be seasons where I don't confess and I confess it. So, and then I, I realize that there seems to be this growing distance between me and God. And it's just like, I might be sitting outside one quiet night. And one of those nights when I can pray and I have words and I realize, God, I've created this wall. God, I've created this, this, this thing that's, that's blocking. And I, I'm able to sit still and I allow God to show me those things that are in my life that's created those barriers. And all of a sudden, I feel like I have no choice but to confess those things. I have no choice but to say, God, I, I, I've blown this. 
and I can't fix it. Because every time I try to fix it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. God, I need you to fix that. That thing that I broke, that thing that I, that I did wrong. God, I need you to take this thing off of my heart. When we confess, it's just like God is helping us clear the air. And God forgives. He's not just, his nature is just. His nature is compassionate. These are the words of the pastor. His nature is compassionate. His nature is kind, but he cannot overlook sin. We got to confess that. So he put his own son forward as the atoning sacrifice so that redemption is, in, is accomplished. Any of you people here, uh, Petra fans? Aha, uh-huh, okay. So we just dated a whole lot of people. There was a Christian rock band in the 70s, 80s. Heck, they may still be out there now because they, uh, you know, old Christian rock bands, they don't die. They just fade away. In this case, uh, there's a group called Petra. It means rock. And I was at one of their concerts, took my youth group there once, and uh, I was in line for the bathroom, and the guy standing in front of me uh, had a T-shirt on. And the words on the back of the shirt, I'm going like, that might be one of the coolest, most profound things I've ever read. And it said this. The righteousness he requires is the righteousness his righteousness requires him to require. And I had a lot of time to stand there and just contemplate that and memorize it to the fact that, it, you know, 20 something years later, it's still with me. Uh, so I just want to sit on that for a minute. The righteousness he requires is the righteousness his righteousness requires him to require. Basically, in a nutshell, this is saying that a sacrifice had to be made for our sins because God is righteous. And he has an expectation for righteousness, but we can't meet it. So Jesus was able to meet that. And in a great substitutionary atonement where our sins were put on him and his righteousness was put on us, God was able to provide to provide the sacrifice required for our sins because his righteousness demands it. Those times when we sin, God expects confession because that is that part that helps us to get right with God again. One of the other things that Alan wants to talk about, and we are uh, might be close to being done. We're going to see if we can beat Alan's time. When you pray, contemplate. This is the practice of listening and waiting, and we see it modeled well with David, especially throughout the Psalms. David models someone who waits on God in this way. He says, uh, this is the pastor quoting the scriptures here, my soul waits in silence for God only. That's from Psalm 62, 1. Psalm 42, 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? There's this, this urgency, this desire, this longing. Um, when, I, when I think about David and, and his intense desire to be with God, I can't help but think about the tragedy of the loss of his son. Because uh, if you're familiar with this story at all, he had an affair with this lady named Bathsheba uh, that resulted in a pregnancy and a murder and a scandal. And when the prophet Nathan, when God told the prophet Nathan what was going on, Nathan went to confront him 
And Nathan told David, because you did this wicked thing, your child is going to die. And in a very, very moving story, um, let me see if I can find that real quick. I'm in 2 Samuel 12. Beginning with verse 15, it talks about all the things that David tried to do to change God's mind in this tragic story. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elder of Elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. So this is going on, seven days. Find it hard to pray for an hour. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, I mean, while the child was alive, we spoke to him. He didn't listen to us, so... How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He might do himself more harm. But when David saw that his, sermon, that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David asked, he said, is the child dead? He said, he's dead. David rose from the earth and washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he went to his own house And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. We're closing in on probably one of the most tender verses, at least to me, in the whole Bible. The servant said to him, what is this thing you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. And when the child died, you arose and you ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept for I said, who knows? Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And this is the hope that we all have. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Can't imagine those seven days of hoping and praying earnestly, just hoping that God's going to change his mind on this. I'm reminded of the the story of Job in chapter 2, 11 through 13, where you see a very similar story, but different, well, not really different circumstances, because Job, righteous man, lost everything. Lost everything. If you know the story at all, I'm not going to get into the background story, but you do know that there's like Job had these friends that kept trying to give uh, Job, all this advice, and at different points, God just hammers them hard for giving all this, this bad advice. But something struck me as I read this once. It begins in verse 11. When Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon Job, they came each from his own place. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. They made an appointment together. I'm sorry? I'm in Job chapter 2, 11. Yeah, and now I'm about to be on 12. Uh, They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. 
And when I when I hear, you know, people give grief about these three friends of Job, I'm, this next part strikes me pretty hard. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. They may not have had a lot of good to say, but they were there with him for a full week. And it sounds to me like they were silent. And then Job, in one verse, chapter three, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. That's a prayer. That's a prayer right there. But God's not afraid of prayers like that either. God's big enough for it. Matter of fact, the rest of the story is basically Job saying, why, why, why? And then finally God's saying, all right, now it's my turn. Who are you? I love this story. I love this story to the point where at the end, finally, Job issues a prayer that goes something along these lines. I'm unworthy. I don't know how to reply. There's nothing you can't do. You're the storm that calms my soul. I place my hands over my mouth. I love this story. And I love the fact that he sat there for seven days and seven nights, not even knowing what to say. And God was there with him the whole time. Contemplative prayer is being with God, empty handed, waiting attentively for whatever he wants to say. Finally, the pastor wants to talk about on Sunday when you pray, communicate. The heart of communication is to listen for understanding. We see this in the calling of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3. We saw the story earlier about how Hannah, she she couldn't even say anything. That The the priest thought that she was drunk. Well, after this, God blessed her with a child, and the child was dedicated to the service of God and given to the, uh, the priesthood, and his name was Samuel, and this is his story in chapter 3. We see that there was a time Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight began to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down on his own place. The lamp of God had not gone out. Samuel was laying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was with him. And then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am. I don't know if someone's calling me. I don't know what I'd say. I'd probably say, yep. People come by my office every day. Hey, Gary. Yep. What's going on? How can I help? We have no way to, no indication that he knew who was calling him. So he ran to Eli. He thought it was him. Here I am for you called me. But he said, I didn't call. Lie down, lie down again. Went and lay down. So this happens again. And at some point, Eli's kind of beginning to have an understanding, hey, you know what? There's something bigger going on here than all of us. So he tells him the next time this happens, tell him or answer, speak, Lord, for your servant here. So Samuel went, lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood, calling at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel said, speak for your servant here. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say speak for your Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. He doesn't know God yet. He might know of God, but he doesn't have that intimate relationship with him. 
Speak for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And what's about to happen now is kind of tragic. It's, it's condemnation and judgment on a failed priesthood, uh, beginning with Eli and his family, but it also has hope and promise of what God is about to do and what God is about to stir up um, through the life of Samuel. That's his call. Communicate. The idea here is, is that uh, when we develop an insistent desire in our hearts to hear from the Lord, uh, God will honor that. When we have a desire, even when we have trouble speaking through the, the guilt and the hypocrisy, through the silence, through the groanings, through not knowing what to say, uh, as long as we, as, if we develop that, that insistent desire in our hearts to hear from God, God will fight his way through the conversation, through whatever is going on, um, through the storm, through whatever. There's that still small voice, that whisper that somehow is louder than the storms in our lives. And if we're attuned to that, God can speak to us. In the Lord's Prayer, this is the pastor's notes, Jesus taught us to pray to our Heavenly Father, thy will be done. Well, the secret to that is, if we're not opening to knowing what God's will is, if, we're, if our hearts aren't open, if our ears aren't open, we're not going to know what God's will is. There's a certain requirement for us to, to contemplate, to communicate, to sit there and listen for what God has to offer. We've got to fight off that urge and that desire, that, that thing that a lot of us are really good at is just talking and talking and talking and talking and then saying, all right, God, amen. we got to make those moments to, to have a real communication where we speak and then we listen. And a lot of times we're going to do a lot better if we just do a lot more listening than if we do a lot more speaking. We know that God wants to speak to us. Sometimes his voice is a whisper in the storms of our own making. Yet if we're attentive, the whisper can be louder than the storm, and we can hear the counsel of God. But that requires an attentive ear and a willing spirit. So we'll close real quick uh, because the pastor offers five ways that we can practice solitude. Uh, sing and pray the Psalms. We're kind of running out of time, so I'm just going to run through these real quick. Journal and prayer. By the way, this is just a sneak preview. You're going to get the, the full thing on Sunday morning, so don't feel like cheating. Hey, Gary didn't give us the whole thing. Um, take a walk and listen to God speak through his creation and be still before him. And to close, we'll find that as we sit with him in faith and obedience, he will honor our desire to know and hear him.